If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, why not become a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh? Our membership provides you with access to the RCPE educational portal, the live evening medical updates, and you have options to view the symposia both in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, please go to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Clinical Conversations brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Trainee and Members Committee. My name is Dr. Marilena Giannudi and I am on the TMC. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Edyania Fotinopoulou who is a consultant in diabetes and endocrinology in Edinburgh. She works both in an inpatient and an outpatient setting and we will be discussing the management of diabetes patients on medical wards. So, Dr. Fatinopoulou, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Marilena, and thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to talk today. Thank you for joining us. So, I guess what I'd like to discuss with you first is how should we approach medical patients with newly diagnosed diabetes on the wards? And maybe it's best if we divide that into type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Okay, that's an interesting question. I think it's important to keep in our mind when we see someone with a high blood glucose in a medical ward that there can be four diagnostic scenarios. So it can be either an uh, individual who has pre-existing diabetes and they may present with a problem completely unrelated to their diabetes or maybe in complication of their diabetes. Perhaps these people can be with undiagnosed diabetes who again are presenting with a complication or another problem. Also can be person who has been prior non-diabetic, who have developed stress-induced hyperglycemia as a result of the severity of their underlying health condition. And the final fourth possibility is that they may have drug-induced hyperglycemia, particularly medications such as glucocorticoids are very powerful and then increase um, glucose. So I think it's important in our mind to try to establish what's going on and what we're dealing with before considering available treatment options. And I think the next best question would be to ask those people if they know whether they have diabetes or not. And if they tell you, yes, I do have diabetes, then this is fine, you can adjust their medication. But then if they say, I'm not aware of having had diabetes, then I think best task would be to check a HbA1c, a glycosylated hemoglobin. If the glycosylated hemoglobin is in the diabetic range, then it's obvious that this person has been diabetic perhaps for a longer period of time and they have not been aware. If it's not in the diabetic range, then it's all stress-induced hyperglycemia. So I think it's important before considering the treatment to have it in our mind very clear what type of diabetes we're dealing with and also if it's a possibility of stress-induced hyperglycemia. I'll talk a bit about stress-induced hyperglycemia, which is very common on the medical ward and it's a manifestation of the severity of the underlying illness. And this has to do with the physiological stress and the hormonal response because of the illness. And that leads to increased gluconeogenesis, increased hepatic glucose output, decreased glucose uptake by the adipose tissue, and we have also increased the free fatty acids and high blood glucose levels. 
So in this setting, when you have stress-induced hyperglycemia, as a rule of thumb, depends on the level of the glucose, the comorbidities, and the underlying medical problems. But in general, use subcutaneous or intravenous insulin or a sulfonylurea agent like liclazide or glipizide, depending on where we were. So that's about stress-induced hyperglycemia. Now, if we find that the HbA1c is in that diabetic range, then this person may have existing diabetes. And then I think it's important in our mind to try and establish the etiology of their diabetes. Could that be type 1 diabetes? Could that be type 2 diabetes? Or could be a drug-induced diabetes? Drug-induced diabetes is pretty easy, particularly steroids, glucocorticoids, particularly high-dose steroids that people receive in oncology setting or with temporal arthritis or with other inflammatory conditions. If they've been on high-dose steroids, then that may be the underlying cause. Differentiating between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, we have clinical criteria to help us, such as BMI, the presence of ketones, a diagnosis. Also, if people have had a positive family history, if they have gestational diabetes before, that can help us to establish the etiology. Also, we have biochemical markers that can be useful. For example, C-peptide is a marker of endogenous insulin production and can give us an idea if the pancreas is producing insulin, which is more in keeping with type 2 diabetes. Finally, pancreatic autoantibodies, which we've been using a lot recently, the anti-GAD antibody, anti-islet antibodies, and anti-zinc-T8 antibodies can be helpful and can be present in type 1 diabetes. There are also other causes of diabetes, monogenic diabetes, but I think this is not something that's going to be relevant in the acute setting, something possibly for the clinics. So I think in general, it's important to establish a diagnosis if we talk about stress-induced hyperglycemia or undiagnosed diabetes, and then we can move into the management. That's great. So that was going to be my next question with regards to the management, because I assume that in stress-induced hyperglycemia and potentially in drug-induced hyperglycemia, it may be that these patients aren't on treatment lifelong. Is that right? That's a good question. I think for drug-induced hyperglycemia, then depends on the duration of treatment, how long they're going to be on steroids for. That's why it's important when someone starts on steroids, particularly on high-dose steroids, to let them know that the sugar can increase and if they have pre-existing diabetes or pre-diabetes to keep a close eye on their blood glucose. If they haven't had diabetes before and they start on high-dose steroids, again, it's very important to teach them how to do glucose monitoring and to give them clear instructions who to contact if the blood glucose is persistently above a certain value of 10 or 12. Also, when we start some on steroids, depending on risk factors, we may consider checking an H1C at initiation of the treatment and also three months down the line to see what has happened. I think for steroids, if the treatment is going to be short term, then we have the anticipation that the glucose will improve and they're not going to need further treatment, but that needs to be reassessed. Treatment-wise for drug-induced hyperglycemia and steroid-induced hyperglycemia, depending on the local guidelines and protocols, insulin or uh, sulfonylurea is what we've been using depending on the severity of the hyperglycemia. So you can either use both of those agents, depending on you know, the frailty, if the patients can manage uh, injections and take those factors into consideration. So, you know, it depends on the duration again, and hopefully they may even stop the treatment, so I don't think it's going to be lifelong. For stress-induced hyperglycemia, studies have shown that this can be related with increased risk of developing diabetes in the future. Again, 
we're not going to start these people on regular therapy and that needs to be reassessed when they're well and perhaps three months down the line to get a repeat HbA1c and see what their blood glucose figures range. So they may not need treatment long term, but they have increased the risk of developing diabetes in the future. And you mentioned before that when you do have somebody with high blood sugars on the acute medical take and you're wondering whether there is an underlying diagnosis of diabetes, you do the HbA1c to help guide the diagnosis. Is a one-off HbA1c enough to give a patient that label of diabetes or is it that it's the HbA1c in conjunction with the glucose reading? I think this process is very useful because if this is raised, it's going to show that the person, the individual has high blood glucose for a certain period of time and not for this particular day they've been unwell. But again, history is very important. Ask for any osmotic symptoms, for any weight loss, for any other features that may help us establish a diagnosis. Also, how the blood glucose behaves if the underlying intercurrent illness improves, are the figures going to improve? So I think you're right. It's not one factor we take into account, but the combination of things. And that's why it's important to have a proper history and physical examination, look at the medication and ask all those questions. And you mentioned, obviously, we've covered the initial management of stress-induced and drug-induced diabetes. How should we be approaching a newly diagnosed type 1 diabetic or a type 2 diabetic? Okay, so an individual with new diagnosis of type 1 diabetes it kind of multidisciplinary team approach, it's a lot of education that we need to go through. In the acute setting, for example, if they present with uh, diabetic ketoacidosis, we need to treat that if that's present with intravenous insulin or intravenous fluids. And then following that, normally the diabetes team will take over and diabetes nurses will offer education and talk about glucose monitoring, talk about the injections, talk about hypoglycemia and cover different aspects of type 1 diabetes management. Most of the times now we start with bolus insulin to cover the meals and then we may add background insulin as well. But this is something that I don't expect the junior doctors to deal with. I think the acute setting, I would give intravenous or some subcut insulin to bring the glucose down and then I will refer to the local team for further input. Now, in people with type 2 diabetes, with a, let's say newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes, lifestyle changes are very important. And if the HbA1c allows, if it's not very high and they don't have severe osmotic symptoms or weight loss, then we should still try and offer this patient the chance to change their lifestyle and uh, give up proper advice about diet, nutrition, advise them what local resources that may be available like online courses or face-to-face courses that can help with diet and exercise. And then we move on to medical management, which first choice is metformin, a very good drug which helps with insulin sensitivity and that can be something that can be considered. But again, metformin, we need to keep in our mind that if someone is acutely unwell with an intercurrent illness, it's not something that would start in the acute setting. If they're, on the other hand, stable and they've tried lifestyle changes for a while and they haven't succeeded and haven't proved their HbA1c, then metformin would be the best available treatment. And then the diabetes clinics could take this over for um, further escalation of treatment if required. And Perhaps from a very selfish point of view, but I remember being a junior doctor on what was then called on the ambulatory unit. I think now most places are calling them the same day emergency care unit. And I got referred an 18-year-old patient who the GP had seen with osmotic symptoms. They'd done a random blood sugar which was raised and they referred to the hospital for investigation and management of a possible new diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. And now 
the patient wasn't in DKA according to her bloods, her ketones, her urine tests and so on. And I think that case has just stuck with me because different MAU consultants have given me different advice on how I should have treated that patient. And ultimately, the endocrinologist that was on call said this patient needs insulin now and then the rest can be dealt with by the diabeticness. So for anybody who has potentially been in a similar situation or will be in a similar situation in the future, what kind of things should we be looking out for in these patients to either warn us of hospital admission or to start insulin before them seeing a diabeticness? So if the patients are stable, there is no need to panic. And I think as long as we're excluded if they're unwell, then the next step would be to liaise with the local team and see what help is available. But let's say it's a Friday evening or over the weekend, then in that setting, you still want to teach the individual glucose monitoring and show them how to test the blood glucose. So I would give this individual bolus insulin. I would give strong worsening advice that they would need to come back if they start experiencing vomiting or they're very unwell. But then I think uh, this person particularly that you mentioned sounds safe that they can cope for another day or so before they see the local team and start the education process. So it depends on what the local guidelines that the local teams are used to do. But in Scotland, for example, have the STEP program that we try to offer education in a stepwise manner and do not overwhelm the individual with all this information that clearly is overwhelming and it's very difficult to grasp the very first day that everything seems completely life-changing and overwhelming for them. So I think liaise with the local team, but again, I think if they're not equally unwell, we have the luxury to wait and try to do that in a more stepwise approach. And just speaking of that, if you don't mind, how do your teams go about dealing with increasing compliance in these young patients with diabetes? Because I think we've all been in that situation where you're working on MAU and you just have the same patients coming in week in, week out, because you just can't get them to be compliant with their insulin. That's a very good question and also show us how challenging the management of type 1 diabetes can be. And we know particularly, for example, for adolescents and young people with type 1 diabetes, they experience higher rates of psychological distress, they have periods of burnout, and they often feel unable to cope with the burden of living with type 1 diabetes. This is not an easy thing. And we need to think more holistically and see how we can support them in the longer term. I think it's very important uh, family, peer support and education, which can help reduce the distress and improve well-being and management. Also, in our clinics, we have psychological screening assessment tools that we use on a yearly basis at the annual visits. And we try to detect early any signs of anxiety or depression and ensure that we refer these people appropriately to the service available so we can improve their mental health. I think overall, Psychological and behavioral interventions can be very useful and they have shown significant improvements in quality of life and management of type 1 diabetes. For example, cognitive behavioral therapies, motivational interviewing, coping skills, training. These are interventions that uh, in long term I think can be very beneficial and we need to think how these people can be appropriately referred and also how they can engage with the service because you may refer them and they can never turn up. So we need to have a strategy of how to offer these people the help that has evidence-based benefit. 
And when we do have patients coming into a hospital acutely unwell, how should we go about either increasing or decreasing their insulin dose, depending on what their blood sugars are? And then what time should we be reconsidering potentially putting them back to their pre-hospital dose once they have been cured from their acute illness? Okay, I think we need to keep in our mind that in a hospital setting, we don't want a very intensive glycemic control. And actually, this can be quite harmful sometimes. We need to avoid hypoglycemia. I think in general, in Scotland, we have this acceptable range for blood glucose between 6 to 12 millimoles per liter. In England and Wales, it's advocated between 6 to 10, but I think it's acceptable to have a range between 6 to 12 overall. And particularly for people who are already on insulin and sulfonylurea agent like glycoside or glipizide, we don't want the blood glucose to be less than 6 because they can have an increased risk of hypoglycemia. So in general, we're aiming for a target between 6 to 12. And then if their blood sugar is persistently above our target, above 12, then we can think about what adjustments we can make. So if these individuals are already on insulin, then we can increase their insulin. We try to do that carefully. So normally, depending again on how high the blood glucose is and what the underlying illness we're dealing with is, particularly if it's an infection, an ulcer, and you may want to improve the glucose and you improve the infection and the healing. But generally, I decrease insulin by two or four units per time and then assess what the blood glucose is doing after that. For people who are on sulfonylureas and they're not on the maximum dose, you can consider increasing the dose up to the maximum dose. Or sulfonylurea is a good agent to add on an acute setting, try to improve the sugar if they're not already on that. And we need to keep in our mind that for people with type diabetes, metformin and the SGLT2 inhibitors, they are not agents that you would start in an acute setting. So in general, as I said before, we have insulin and sulfonylureas to try and improve glucose in the hospital setting. And once the patients have gotten over their infection, should we be reconsidering stopping that or going back to their original dose? Can yeah, you- it's uh, something that shows how important uh, patient education is. And, you know, we need to empower people to do blood glucose testing, talk about their targets and make it very clear who they should contact if the blood sugar is specifically high. So I would not routinely down escalate treatment and stop treatment before they leave the hospital. But of course, this is dynamic. This depends on the person. If they can monitor their blood sugars at home, then I would be reassured that they would act on that quickly and they would let us know. So again, this depends on how things are on discharge and what follow up plan we have in place. So I think it's many factors we need to think about. So the answer is, I don't think there's a wrong answer, but I think it's dynamic and depends on the individual. Can I ask, we've obviously covered the management of type 1 diabetes, lots of IV insulin, IV fluids. I think what I have found very difficult, and I'd like to think I'm speaking on behalf of junior doctors across Scotland and England, is the management of HHS, a hypoglycemic hyperosologic symptoms. So what would your advice be? I know there are lots of guidelines out there, especially from Diabetes UK, but I always find that it's a very, very big document and you just don't really know where to focus sometimes. So what would your advice be to junior doctors? Yes, that's an interesting question. I agree the guidelines can vary from hospital to hospital. I think for HHS, for junior doctors, we need to keep in our mind that this is a condition that is more sinister than DKA and has a very high mortality, up to 50% sometimes, affects mostly older people, and the large proportion of those have diabetes which has been undiagnosed before. 
I think it's very important to try to think what may have precipitated the manifestation of CHS for junior doctors. Try to identify an intracarnate illness, like an infection, perhaps myocardial infarction can be the trigger factor behind that, and check ECGs and troponins. Look at the history if individuals have been containing high sugar drinks prior to admission. And of course, if they've been on any glucocorticoids, high dose glucocorticoids can also have been implicated in the pathogenesis of this condition. I think the diagnosis is biochemical, so it's pretty easy to establish, have high blood glucose, high serum osmolality, no ketosis and no acidosis. However, because it has a very insidious onset, can be often mistaken for other conditions such as strokes. It's not always very easy to establish this diagnosis, but we need to keep in our mind that uh, at presentation, these patients have profound dehydration. We're talking about a very high deficit of 9 to 10 liters. They can be often confused. They can be vomiting because of gastroparesis. And also, it's very important to remember that these patients are hypercoagulable and venous thrombosis and cardiovascular events are important to exclude and they should be put on appropriate DVT prophylaxis. I think the management is very protocolized. So I don't want to go through the management because each hospital have their own guidelines. But the main message is that these people need fluids and it's important to establish access and start with fluids and then start with solenified. So I think the management depends on where you work. Normally, the unit should have very good guidelines to follow. But I think the things that I mentioned are important to remember about establishing the diagnosis, looking for precipitating factors and try to get this right, which is obviously has a very high mortality and it's not easy to treat. Yes, yes. Okay. And I'm a cardiology registrar. So our new favorite drug is dapagliflozin. Okay. I think yeah. for cardiologists everywhere and for anyone treating patients with heart failure. Is it safe for us to be prescribing these agents to patients with heart failure alone that have no problems with their blood sugar control? So I guess you're right. I think the HGLD2 inhibitors, dapagliflozin, empagliflozin, canagliflozin, they have become our new favorite medication. They have been increasingly used because, as you said, they have this heart failure benefit and also benefiting renal disease. And that's because of the glycosuria and also because they offer this degree of natriuresis. Therefore, you have this extra benefit on blood pressure. And also, most importantly, they don't cause hypoglycemia. So it's anti-diabetic agent, which has multiple benefits and also doesn't cause hypoglycemia. So how good that is, that's very good. I think it's important to try and educate our patients and to give them the right information at the beginning to the side effects my experience and what things they need to be aware of. And that's because glycosuria, we know that offers this kind of sugar environment in the urea and germs like that, and that can lead to genital candida infections and urinary tract infections. So we need to offer advice about proper washing and uh, that they need to seek help if they experience those infections. Very rare, but also definitive risk of SGLT2 is the euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. Therefore, it's important to give explicit advice that these drugs should stop in the context of intercarnal illness, particularly if we're dealing with a vomiting or dehydrating illness. The same way you would stop metformin or an ACE inhibitor or a diuretic or an angiotensin receptor blocker, people need to stop those medications. So I think we can improve on this area. We have some leaflets when we start those agents, but then people don't always remember. So it's something that we can reinforce at our clinic visits about the sick day rules that this medication needs to stop because they reduce the risk of euglycemic ketoacidosis. 
But overall, I think those medications will be used in the future more and more. And now the guidelines have started to change and going to use them up to, for example, that can be used down to a GFR of 15. So that's increasing in uh, use. And finally, from your point of view, when you're coming onto the wards and reviewing these patients that we have asked for a diabetes review, is there anything that you see that is regularly done by the junior doctors on the ward that, you know, you feel should really not be done? Is there anything that we should be avoiding that could either be harmful or that doesn't help in the management of these patients? Yeah, I think what can be harmful, which I have mentioned before, is the fact that we should not be aiming for a very strict glycemic control while someone is on the ward. We don't worry too much if blood glucose is a bit high, but we do worry if blood glucose gets low because that can cause hypoglycemia. The individual can have a collapse, can have a fall, can have a fracture. So that can be very harmful and something that we don't want to happen in a hospital setting particularly. So the message I would like to kind of convey today would be that if sugar is a bit high, can get it down with some subcutaneous insulin if it's super high, but then try to avoid the low blood sugars and the very tight control because patients don't eat the same at the hostel, they don't have the same appetite. So we may need to be proactive and reduce their insulin if we find that their sugar is continuously flecting with low numbers like five or six. Also, you know, they have an internal illness and although they can have stress and hyperglycemia, at the same time, because of other medication, because they're not fit, they're not well, their sugar can be low as well. So that would be my first kind of take-home message. Message number two, I guess, would be about sick day rules and HGL2 inhibitors and metformin and ACE inhibitors. Those medications need to be stopped in setting of vomiting and intercarnal illness. And also, finally, what I would say we could improve on a ward would be to look for a precipitating reasons and causes that can lead to EKA or a HHS presentation. So just try to see if there's an infection or if there's any abscess. You can look at the body, look at the skin, look at back area, because very often, you know, we may be treating DKA, but then we kind of missed like, literally what's going on in the first place. So I've seen that quite a lot, not because of junior dogs, because everyone can improve on this area. I remember as a junior, I had this patient that presented with DKA and had to look at the ECG for, I don't know, four hours. It was a pretty obvious STEMI. And because obviously these people have diabetes, they wouldn't experience any pain and it's something that always stuck in my mind that it's something that I need to make sure I've checked it and there's no any acute features of ischemia on the ACG because obviously that can be treatable and something we can do something about. So I think those three areas in my mind that took and all of us can do it better. Great. Thank you so much. I think we'll leave it there because you've given us lots of things to think about, lots of things that I think we can all improve. So on behalf of the TMC, I'd like to thank you for your time. And on behalf of our listeners, thank you for all your advice and wise words today. Thank you. Thank you very much and hope that was useful. Thanks a lot. <laughs>